Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get us started because it is 11.15 and I've learned over the years to be punctual. Punctuality is one of my husband's love languages. So in order to love my husband well, I have become a punctual person. So we're going to go ahead and uh, get started. Um, what I'd like to do first is if we could just briefly go, I'd like us to go around the room and just tell us your name and what is your relationship with your wanderer? Okay, son, daughter, friend, whatever. And if you don't have a wanderer currently, praise God, and this can be a preemptive strike or just maybe an awareness of how you can come alongside someone who has someone who's wandered in their life, um, which I have found very helpful for me to have people come alongside me. I have a whole tribe of, of women that are praying for my wanderer. So let's go around. We'll just kind of zigzag across here. Lydia? Your name and... And who has wandered? What grandson? Grandson. Okay, grandson. What's your name? Uh, my name is Debbie, and my daughter is. I think she. It's like she. She doesn't know or feel. I mean, I don't know. I can't explain. She's not close. But I okay. Have a I have a daughter who's a youth leader with the church and everything, and this one is like totally like kind of a lost one. She's living has anxiety. Okay. So a daughter who's shifting ground. Okay. And AJ? Uh, I'm AJ, and I'm here because we have, my wife and I have a friend whose son is wandering. And so he's also a student of ours. Yep. Okay. Hi, my name is Kay, and I don't have a wandering yet, so my son's going off to college. So (laughs) (laughs) You're wise, yes. (laughs) Okay. Granddaughter, okay. My name is Jonathan, and one of my best friends from college. Okay, yeah, those are hard. Jason, I don't really have a wanderer, but I'm kind of Kay's, you know, the, the road of faith is long, right? And mm-hmm. With uh, kids going off, getting older and going off to school and realizing my own walk, you know, that uh, I want to be a little preemptive. Preemptive, very good. Cheryl, my brother. Your brother, okay. And then we'll go back here. Eric, and um, <clears throat> both my daughter, sort of. One of them uh, was to church Christmas and Easter. Okay. Um, but she's here with us this week, and she's come every year. So. Great. Um, and the other one is um, because we forced her to go to church until she was 18. Mm-hmm. She'll never go to church again. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Barrett? My parents and your sister. Okay. I'm Christina, and I'm the in-laws, and my sister-in-law. Okay. I'm Jim, and a friend, a close friend, and the fear of my kids. They're in college, and they're starting all over. The fear of, like, what might happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Preemptive. <laughs> My name's Wesley. Uh, just had coffee with the governor of Christian all his life and said, I don't know why I stopped my work. I'm Robin, and I have two sons. Two sons. Adult children? Great. Great. 
your adult son, okay? Okay. <laughs> Welcome, Nancy. Yes. Hi, I'm Darren. Hi, Darren. Okay. Yes. Down comes the bar. Keep your hands inside the cart. Yes. Okay. Okay. Hi, Bertha. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We're just saying our names and our relationship with our wanderer, or if you just are here for a preemptive strike, Bertha. I'm Joanna, and I just love Liz. Joanna has known me for a very long time. <laughs> And Phil also serves on the board of directors here with me at Mount Hermon, as does Kay's husband. We actually might have enough for a quorum here during week five. So, um, so I think it's safe to say, I think one of the things I like doing about this introductory time is because it's to help us re remember that we're not alone in this. It is a club none of us wanted to join, none of us hope to join. It's like all of those hard clubs. It's the cancer club, the divorce club, the financial disaster club. And sometimes when you're in those states of really hard things, God gives us people to walk the road with us, to journey alongside of us. And so that's why it's always good to sort of talk about, and you know, you've mentioned that you have women in your life and you are coming alongside them. Um, so just a little bit about me. Here's my tribe. This is my family. Um, some of you might recognize them if you've been around Mount Hermon for a while. On this side here, this is our son, Eric. He is currently an accountant in Santa Barbara, but he served here on summer staff for three summers as a lifeguard and then two years as ranger in childcare. Um, and then there's me and our daughter, Masha. You will see her in the dining room. She works um, on the dining staff, and so you'll see her wandering around. Please compliment her on her serving skills because she's very proud of them, and she would love to serve you coffee. Um, so she and I have been up here all summer while she's been working full-time in the dining room. The handsome guy behind Masha is my husband, Brian. He is the engine that makes our family go. Um, he has been, he would just left yesterday. He was here for about 10 days. Um, so he's coming in and out from Southern California to enjoy Mount Hermon as well. The center, this is the current star of our show. That's our granddaughter, Haley. Uh, she just turned one and um, they were here a few weeks ago and she was enjoying all the delights of running around on the rec field. Um, she is being held by her dad, our oldest son, David. He uh, works for a software company in Santa Barbara. And um, while he was here at Mount Hermon, he served three summers as Spike in day camp. If any of you had kids had Spike for a counselor. And that's where he met his beautiful bride, Anne, who was also Winnie at day camp, um, so they met there. And this handsome guy, this is Kevin. His nickname was Bandit when he worked at Redwood Camp. Somehow that's not a surprise that his nickname was Bandit, because this is our wandering one, this guy here on the end. Um, so let's see, I wanna kinda start out with a few things just to um, 
lay the groundwork, and always the very first thing I like to do before I enter this time is to open us and, and bring it before the Lord. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are coming here, um, some of us with anxious or fearful or sad hearts. And some of us have worry about the future. Some of us are steeped in it. And Lord, we are here to hear from you. Uh, Lord, this time we are laying before you and asking that it would be indeed for our good and most of all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a few statements to make right at the outset just to sort of set the expectations. The first thing I want to let you guys know is I have Kevin's permission to um, tell this story and to talk about this. Um, we've had some really good conversations about this, as you can imagine. It's important to me that I honor him and our relationship well. Um, and I think for each one of us, as we are talking about our wanderers, it can be a little tricky. Um, when you're sharing your story with people, your loved one's story will very often intersect and mesh and get entangled, and it can get complicated. It can be a challenge to share about it. It's not insurmountable, but it's really important to pay attention to how we speak about our loved ones who have wandered. In the telling of my story, I don't diminish the sadness and the heartache of it, but I never have a desire to disparage my son in any way. I want to honor the relationship that we have. Um, second, and I mentioned this in the auditorium, this isn't a fix-it or a how-to seminar. AJ and I were talking, said, if it was only so easy, or Jason, you and I were saying that, somebody was saying that with me. Um, our job is not to fix our wanderer. Our job is to be faithful to Jesus. And then finally, the main subject of this seminar is not your wanderer. The main subject of this seminar is Jesus and how our relationship with Jesus is transformed through this life journey with our wanderers. He wants to transform us, to draw us closer to him um, through this circumstance. It was like what um, Nicole was saying, you know, looking at your circumstances and saying, I can't change those. I'm going to change how I respond to them. So here's where we're going to go looking at the little handout that you have. First, we're gonna talk about what's our response to our wanderers, okay? Um, what, it, what wells up within us when we think about our loved one who has wandered? And then we're gonna talk about, you know, where do we wanna be instead? What's the landing pad? And what happens in this middle space? This is where the heavy lifting happens, what Jesus does in our life when he transforms us. Okay, so that's what we're gonna be looking at. How do we get from there to here? Now, before we dive into how we respond, one of the things we need to talk about is sort of the, the spectrum, the wide range of how people wander, because that will very often dictate what our response is. Whether we like it or not, sometimes we are reactive to what is happening with our loved ones. So in, in no particular order, uh, these are some ways people will wander from the Lord. There's flat out angry rebellion. It's in your face. It rejects God and it even potentially rejects you. Um, you're witnessing destructive choices and dangerous behaviors. And this is the kind of pain that has pain layered on it, underneath it, all around it. Um, there's also kind of what I would call sort of that slow drift. It looks a lot like apathy towards faith. 
um, your loved one could be described as a very pleasant person. And for a myriad of reasons, maybe they've just left Jesus behind. At some level, maybe they still believe in God, acknowledge Jesus, but they've ceased to live their lives in real surrender to Jesus. And it actually might bug them that you care that they don't care anymore. And so there's a tension that can be created. Then there's wanderers that have made a real deliberate and willful decision to look at the scriptures, to look at Jesus and say, no, this is not true. And maybe they've embraced a completely different faith construct. They've looked at some sort of other kind of spirituality to be the answer to life, and it's not Jesus. They can be successful people by the world's standards. They can also be very nice people, but they've rejected scriptures. They've rejected Jesus and no longer claim him as their saviors. So these are just a few descriptors of wanderers. Um, as many people as there are in this room, there are stories of how people wander from the Lord. I actually, and in my conversations with Kevin about this seminar, um, I sent him all, I've sent him big excerpts from this, and I said, let's talk about these things. Because he offered, when I told him I would like to do this seminar for Mount Hermon, he goes, great, can I give you some input? <laughs> yeah, good. Um, and I asked him, I said, Where do, what do you think about these ways people wander? And so we had a long conversation about that. And I said, I said well, what about you? And he goes, ah, I'm probably mostly in the second just kind of apathetic about it, you know, just, you know, it's kind of a decision I've made to no longer identify as a Christian, but it's just not a priority for me. So, okay, that's good to know. Um, so let's talk about what our response is when our, we realize our loved one has wandered from the Lord. What are some words that you would use to describe what you have experienced when your loved one has wandered? Throw them out. Sadness. sadness. Really sorrowful sadness. Anger. anger. Yes. What was it Nicole said? Christians call it frustration, but it's anger. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Panic. Panic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you've been, you've watched that road maybe in your own life too. And so it's like, I know what is at the end of that choice. Okay, panic. I would say reactive instead of taking time to like, consider. Right. It's more like a reaction. Like it's just kind of, this oh, is absolutely. Very quick. Especially, especially I find this that's very common in parents because we're used to fixing things for our kids. And we jump in there, and especially if they're living under your roof, you have a little more permission to do that. But when they're out of the house, and it's adult to adult, it's very, very different. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Seems to me you have to be a role model. Yeah. So I have to see this that way. But I, all these things you're talking about are are try to respond to other things like you're saying mm -hmm. is not the way to do it, but God's God's way to do it. But
but it's normal. And I think that's what we have to look at too. We can't work, there are normal responses of sadness and anger and, yes? Confusion. Confusion. Uh-huh. Yeah, like, what? Yeah, Jim? Loss. Loss. Right, right. And you mentioned earlier too, being um, anxious or fearful. Yeah, fearful. Yeah, the anxiety level, just uh, kind of that panicky sort of feeling. Um, so I want to talk about these um, kinds of responses. And, I, and as I was thinking about it, I actually put them into some categories, okay, that you all happen to mention, <laughs> okay? Um, there's the anxiety, fear, um, those kinds of experiences, worry. Then there's the anger, the frustration, kind of just being rather furious at the whole circumstance. Um, and then the sadness, that sorrow, disappointment. And you're thinking, well, gosh, you had this PowerPoint all prepared. How in the world did you know this is what we were gonna say? Um, the reality is some of it's my own life experience, but in preparation for this seminar that's been about two years in the making in my soul, um, I've had, I have done what I call conversational research. I have talked to so many people that have loved ones who's wandered from the Lord. And over and over, this is what I'm hearing, that there's anxiety, there's anger, there's sadness, there's loss, there's all those other things. I kind of boiled it down to these three. Um, these are the things that I've heard. So this is where we are. And I remember talking with my husband about this because he and I are obviously on this journey together. We have our own individual relationships with Kevin, our son, but we talk about this. And I said, where do you land most of the time? And he said, well, you know, he, he tends to lean in the, into the anger department, whereas my best friend is anxiety. Um, he says, but you know, I don't live there. That would be exhausting. And I said, okay, I get that too. We don't want to live in these places, but we also don't want to just be in neutral. So like, let's just be Switzerland about this. So what, where do we want to be instead? Where, what's our, what are we hoping to get to? What is our response? Okay. What is the transformation that we're looking for that has to take place in these little blue bubbles to get us to a better landing pad, okay? We know where we are, we have a desire to be transformed, and how does God use that middle space, okay? So I'm gonna just go through these um, one by one. So first we're gonna start with the anxiety one. And the most familiar passage of scripture about anxiety is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we have a command, don't be anxious, which acknowledges that there are things in life that will cause us to be anxious. But he says, don't do that. And then he gives us a solution, prayer with thanksgiving. And it tells us the result of the solution, peace of God, the kind of peace that makes no sense given what your circumstances are, okay? So that is where our landing pad is, peace, okay? I wanna move from anxiety to peace. Scripture tells me peace is the promised and desired landing pad when we want to get off of our anxious place. Now, what God doesn't say 
is that he's gonna give us a yes answer to that which is causing us anxiety. It merely tells us that the act of prayer with a thankful spirit is gonna result in the peace of God. And I wish life was always that tidy, right? Pray, don't be anxious, pray, peace will come. It's true, but my experience tells me there's a lot of hard work sometimes that is involved in getting there. But I believe it is in the good hard work that we experience God's transformation. And I believe it's what resides in that blue bubble that will remain a mystery for a few minutes, okay? I have an excerpt from Ruth Bell Graham's book. It's called Prodigals and Those Who Love Them. And she has, at the end of the book, she writes about waking up in the middle of the night with her loved one right here in the front of her brain. Anybody had that experience? Okay, I certainly have. And so here's what she writes. Suddenly the Lord said to me, quit studying the problems and start studying the promises. Then she continued and she describes examining Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And she zeroed in on this phrase, with thanksgiving. And then she writes, suddenly I realized the missing ingredient in my prayers had been with thanksgiving. So I put down my Bible and I spent time worshiping him for who and what he is. I began to thank God for giving me this one I love so dearly in the first place. I even thanked him for the difficult spots that had taught me so much. And then here is what I describe as her money shot of the whole book. That was when I learned that worship and worry cannot live in the same heart. They are mutually exclusive. I mean, it's just like, that was just a mind blower for me. As a follower of Christ, I am called to live a life of worship, a life that worships the one true God, a life devoted to worship of Jesus. If I'm consumed with worry about my son, I cannot maintain a posture of worship because my posture is worry. Worship and worry cannot coexist. It's worship that God uses to transform us from anxiety to peace. Now you might be sitting here thinking, okay, hold the phone because I pray all the time for my loved one. I'm all about you know, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, I pray without ceasing for my loved one, that's worship, but I'm still worried, and I'm praying, it's not working. So let's dive a little deeper into that. Um, consider your prayers for your loved ones. When we've been awake in the middle of the night, I'm a visual prayer, I get like word pictures in my head, and I kind of, in my prayers, I have actually visualized myself taking my big 6'2 son and laying him at the feet of Jesus, okay? There have been times when I have grabbed him and thrown him at the feet of Jesus. Stay there. And I will recognize that sometimes when I've done this, I end up kind of curling up next to Kevin at the feet of Jesus. I mean, because that can be a sweet place. And I just whisper, please, God, would you please bring him home? Have you prayed that? Jesus, woo her back to you. It's anxiety that compels us to lay our loved ones at the feet of Jesus. 
But if we are to move from anxiety to peace in a posture of worship, at some point, we have to get up and leave our loved one at the feet of Jesus and maybe even climb into the lap of Jesus ourselves and take Jesus by the face and say, I need to see you, Jesus. And when I look at you, I see loving kindness and I see faithfulness, and I see mercy, and I see grace upon grace. And I will tell you, in the middle of the night, when I pray to God, acknowledging who he is and all of his characteristics, I realize in the morning I have fallen back asleep, and it has been sweet. The anxiety has lifted because I have chosen to worship at the feet of Jesus and in his lap. And that's But and that's where the transformation can come in, where it isn't about what we're doing. It's not about me laying Kevin at the feet of Jesus. It's not about me even crawling up next to him. It's about when I choose to look Jesus in the eye and I have there's corporate worship, but that's my individual worship towards God. I'm not worried about what if Kevin's worshiping. I'm not worried about how he feels at the feet of Jesus. I've laid him there in my heart, and I have chosen to then, because again, it's not about Kevin. That's when I lose my worry. When I, if I am, I'm worried about Kevin and the lifestyle he's choosing, the choices he's making, he's so far from the Lord, he has no joy in Jesus. Oh, blah, 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 blah. What's this going to look like? How does this road go? That's the, that's the, Yes, that's the worry. I'm not yes, and so if we get to that place where we can look Jesus in the eye and we can worship, then we can receive that transformation. You know, the, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says in 3.1 that we are to fix our thoughts on Jesus, and in 12.2 it says to fix our eyes on Jesus. When our thoughts and our eyes are fixed on Jesus, they are not focused and fixed on our loved one. And so we are therefore not worrying about our loved one. But in that same verse, in, in chapter 12, before we can fix our eyes on Jesus, we have to throw off the things that entangle us, the sin that easily entangles us. Some of the times that's worry, but sometimes that moves us into the next place. It's our anger. We have to release that. It's that frustrated fury at the choices and decisions your loved one is making. And I've been there. I, I am uncomfortable there. Anger is not an emotion that I enjoy at all. I'm, I don't like it. Um, but I have been angry because he is mucking up my vision of my perfect Christian family. How dare he? he it changes, he has changed the narrative of our family and it messes with Christmas and Easter. And I don't like how all of these things are changing. 
Now, some of you are angry at your loved ones because there have been ugly things that have been said and disrespectful and disparaging and disregarding behavior that's in your face. And this causes an anger and a frustration. There's a reaction that you, you can't deny. Um, and again, I don't think we want to stay there. Anger is exhausting. So what, where do we want to land instead? What would we rather have as our landing pad? If we don't want to be angry, what are we looking towards? Um, well, to, to look at this one, I want to look at the most familiar story in Scripture when dealing with a wanderer or someone's lost. It's in Luke 15. Jesus is speaking to the crowd, and he tells the story that we know as the prodigal son. And we read the story, if you're familiar with it, a man has two sons, and the younger son, um, this is a phrase of Kevin's when he was describing his life at one point. He actually says, yeah, I'm in high school. I was on a real hot streak of poor life choices. And we said, yes, you were. And this is what our prodigal son was doing. He was on a real hot streak of poor life choices. And he realizes at some point that, boy, life with my dad was a lot better than with these pigs. I'm going to go home and see if he'll take me on as a servant. And here's what we find in Luke chapter 15, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And then we're given this description of the best robe and the ring and the fatted calf and this big party, which is a demonstration of the most, I just call it lavish love, over-the-top love. Now, it isn't a stretch, it's not hard to unpack, that the father's response to the younger son is God's response to the lost and the wandering. Well, I want to land where God resides. That's where I want to live. I would like his response to the lost to be my response to the lost. Compassion and lavish love is where we want to land. These are characteristics of the Father that we need to embrace. Now, compassion, it's defined as a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune. Okay, so that's the noun. It's this feeling, right? But the definition continues, and it says that the feeling is accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. Okay, so that would be the verb. I want to launch towards alleviating this suffering. Now, nowhere in the definition does it say, but you only show compassion if the suffering is not of the self-inflicted nature. You know, it's your own dumb fault, right? It runs counter to my sense of justice, my rightness. It bugs me, and that's my problem. When compassion, the noun, meets compassion, the verb, it is demonstrated in this lavishly loving father of our story. You know, in 1 John 3, 1, it says how great is the love the father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. You know, there's a little part of me that kind of wonders when John was writing that letter, was he remembering this story that Jesus told to the sinners, the tax collectors, the lost, and also in his audience, the Pharisees who were angry at the lost? 
We are in need of transformation, though, to get to this compassionate, lavish love. I mean, God's the perfect father. He doesn't need transformation. He's already there. So how do we get to that place? Well, I think what we need to do is to look at the older brother. He's the other person in the story that might give us some indication on how to get to the compassion and the lavish love, okay? Because the story continues, said the older brother became angry. He was mad, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. And the, the older son proceeds to tee off on his dad and talk about how unfair this is. I've towed the line. I've done everything right. You never gave me a party. And here's two things I see about this older son. One is, I think it's very interesting, there's no recording. Jesus doesn't talk about the older son's response to his younger sibling. He's mad at his dad. Have any of you experienced that? Being mad at God for this whole mess? Because you did everything right. You took your kids to Sunday school. You volunteered at their vacation Bible school. Maybe you and your siblings, you went to camp together. You locked arms and went down in the front. You served at youth group and went on the mission trips together. And now your brother or sister, they are so far off the reservation. You know what you talk about? Weather and sports, and that's it. And that makes you so sad, and it might make you a little mad. Maybe your mom or your dad has done a 180 on everything that they taught you. Or there's a spouse that you stood up and made vows to live a Christ-centered life, to have Christ at the center of your marriage, and they have changed their mind. Where's God in all of this? And you are questioning, and you're shaking your fist, and you're angry at God, and he is not surprised, he is not hurt, he is not offended by any of this. In fact, he tells you what the father told his son. My son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. The, what the father offered his wandering son, his compassion and his lavish love, he, extend, he has already extended to his older son and to each one of us. But to receive it, we have to put our anger aside. We have to let that go. And that, more on that in our second observation. The second thing I see about the older son is because of his anger, he refused to go in to the party. He's missing out. The only thing on the brother's mind is how unfairly he's been treated. And when I've been mad at Kevin, very often it's boiled down to how his wandering is affecting me. And again, that's my problem. And that is my mad place. That's not my sad place. That's very different. Because when your loved one rejects the faith you've shared with them over the years, very often it feels like they're rejecting you too because it's the most important thing to you. But again, I don't want to stay stuck there. I don't want to refuse to miss out on the party. And the story ends with this affirmation of the older brother's place. It doesn't tell us what he decides to do. But we do know that it is the father's desire that he enjoy the party that he enjoy his lavish love and compassion. So if we're sitting outside the party, if we're not acknowledging the reality of this perpetual opportunity to be with the Father, when we're angry, 
we're in that place, we want to get to compassion and lavish love, how do we do that? What's the transformation that takes place? Now, I want to step over here for a second and say some of you are experiencing or have experienced um, a situation with your loved one where your lavish love can only be demonstrated by patiently, faithfully, prayerfully waiting. You cannot engage with that person for a variety of reasons. And some of them are just healthy boundaries that have to be erected. Um, Note that the father, he hasn't gone looking for the wandering son. He's just been waiting there, I like to think, on the front porch, waiting for his son to come home. Okay? So that being said, there are times where we can extend lavish love and compassion, but I have to be willing to go into the party. You know, I remember there was a moment when my husband decided to join the party a bit. It was a difficult party, but I watched him make this transformation from his angry place to this compassion and lavish love that at that moment I actually was not experiencing towards Kevin. Kevin was in college and he had had another setback in his life, and we just were dumbfounded. Like, seriously? Again, he was experiencing some very significant consequences, and we were, we just, I mean, we were pooped. It's like, are we doing this again? And we were mad. And Kevin came home and he walked through the door. And I watched my husband get up out of his chair, and he walked down the hall, and he had his arms out, and he wrapped him in a hug. And they just stood there. Kevin started crying, and then I started crying, and the room was crying. But I just remember that moment of just watching that transformation take place, because I was sitting talking to my husband, and he was mad, and then he just chose to respond with this compassion and lavish love. So I had to set that aside, too. Just one second, I want to go to the next one. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and, that, and you see that in the story of the prodigal son. He embraces, there's that physical connection. So the transformation that needs to take place can only happen when we are willing to lay aside that the things that we're clinging on to that prevent us from joining the party. It's really laying down our idols. Now we can point to the idolatry of hanging on to anger or reputation, the perfect Christian family that I really wanted, that those can easily become idols. Okay, lay those aside, because those are bad things when you do that. But what about when the idols, uh, really on the outside, they look like good things? It's our marriages, it's our ministries, it's hearing that all of my children are walking in the truth. In his book, um, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning and I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. You know, I was struck with this very painful truth about idolatry in my life with my wanderer because I was sharing with some friends, actually here at Mount Hermon, about my heartache 
over Kevin's wandering, and I, I began to cry, and I just said, all my prayers for Kevin, it, my prayer life is so angsty, it's so pleading, and it's so, it's so hard. I said, I, and then I just said, I've lost my joy in my relationship with Jesus. And I just went, oh. I was realizing that to meld Keller and Tripp's definitions, I didn't read one by David Paul Tripp, sorry. I'm running out of time. Kevin's return to Jesus had absorbed my heart and my imagination more than God. I had attached all my hopes and dreams on Kevin's return to Jesus. I mean, it's weird, right? I had made Kevin's relationship with Jesus my idol. My desire for Kevin to return to Jesus was overwhelming and smothering my desire for Jesus himself. And it had become to define my relationship with Jesus. Now, I needed to express my sadness and my anger about this whole thing, but I needed to then lay it down and join the party. Psalm 31, three through four says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who may join the party? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Whether our idol is our anger or our wanderer, we have to let it go. We won't join the party without this transformation into this place of compassion and lavish love. I can't give compassion and lavish love unless I have received the compassion and lavish love of my heavenly Father, and I can't do it without laying down my idol. Now, moving on to our last response, this sadness place, because I think some of you, like me, we're in this angry place, and we're trying to move over to compassion and lavish love, but at some point, we just get so tired, and we just become sad. And I think most of the time, as I've been talking with people about their sadness over their loved one, a lot of it stems from a feeling of absolute helplessness. And this is very often when their loved one is an adult, you know, our adult children. We recognize we have no power or ability to control anything or the decisions that they're making. And in Romans 9, Paul writes about this feeling of helplessness. He describes his sadness over the state of his fellow Jews. He says this, Romans 9, 2 through 5, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants. From them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever be praised, amen. Have you ever joined me in this place, wanting to kind of bargain with God to change the course? of your loved one? For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. Paul is saying, I would rather not be in intimate relationship with Jesus if my fellow Jews would embrace him. I remember there was this one point of very sad and, and loud frustration I was expressing to God. I was having a, a, a very vocal conversation with him. And I actually said at one point, God, if you, just need, if you need to give me cancer in order for Kevin to kind of have a come to Jesus moment and get back to him, I'm good with that. That's okay. That's the way we go, right? Sheesh. 
Because like Paul, I am really dumbfounded by this whole thing. Because the Jews Paul's referring to, they have this huge history. They are in the legacy, the line of the Messiah. And my loved one has a deep and long legacy of faith, raised in the church, godly parents, godly grandparents, godly great-grandparents. And I have struggled to make sense of God's sovereignty in all of this. Because I am pretty sure if he put me in charge for one minute, I could solve all of this. But thankfully, the sovereignty job is a burden I am not meant to bear. You know, Sharon Hodmiller writes for She Reads Truth. It's a devotional app. And she has some really good words about this conundrum when she's referring to Romans 9. She said, the relationship between God's power and our free will is a mysterious one indeed. But when it comes to the decision of a loved one, God's sovereignty removes a great deal of weight from our shoulders. Namely, we cannot force someone to make the right choice. We cannot yell someone into wisdom. We cannot wrestle someone into agreeing with us. And we cannot compel transformation. There is only one who directs the streams of human hearts, and that is God alone. And that's where Paul lands too declaring that Jesus, from the line of the patriarchs, is God over all, forever be praised, amen. We can declare that with our loved one. God over all, forever be praised, amen. Paul is helpless, but he is not hopeless. And praise God, the same can be said of us, because that's our landing pad. We want to move from sadness to hope. Now, initially, when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, it kind of makes sense if you're going to move from sadness, maybe you should be looking towards joy. And joy is good, and I like joy, but I realize when it comes to my wanderer, I find my only hope is in Christ, and then that leads to joy. So I aim for hope first, okay? Now, Scripture is full of calls and to and promises of hope in the midst of sorrow. And we have in Scripture an entire book, Lamentations, that expresses sorrow and sadness. Six chapters of the sorrow and sadness that the writer is experiencing as he looks at the devastation of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. But tucked in the middle, there's one section of verses that give hope. Lamentations 3, 19 through 26. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. This is a movement from sorrow to hope. Again, considering what's happening in that blue bubble. Because like the writer of Lamentations, looking at that destruction of Jerusalem, we can look at the life of our loved one and we can see devastating circumstances. We can look down the road. We know where they're headed. And that can be really, really sad. There are worldly pursuits and consequences of disastrous choices and we can be filled with sorrow. And that's a normal response. I'm not saying to fix normal. I don't think we should ignore normal. What I'm saying is I believe we have to, in that normal, we are called to be transformed. We are called to follow Jesus who offers us hope. 
and hope can become normal. So what happens in that little blue bubble there? Well, the best way that I have kind of figured out how to approach this is to consider the lens with which you are viewing life, specifically here, your wanderer. Because what filters through this front and center lens is kind of determines how you see everything else. I have a really fun photo of a lens and how it sharpens everything, right? What is the lens that's closest to me? Is it the lens of the circumstance? Very often that's true, and that is sad. I am, look through this lens of the circumstance. I am compelled to search for Jesus. I fall exhausted into him saying, oh, thank goodness you are in charge of this whole mess. And I have managed to maneuver my way over to hope. That's good, that's not wrong. But what if we had another way? What if we stared through the lens of Jesus at the circumstance? What if the lens shows us the face of Jesus with such clarity that we see our circumstances through him rather than the other way around? Do we want to see Jesus through our circumstances? Or do we want to see our circumstances through Jesus? Now, maybe you could say, okay, you're kind of splitting hairs. It's little semantics. It's kind of a little you know, cute game. But honestly, when I'm in the depths of my sadness, I'm not really up for a wrestling match with my circumstances and my wanderer. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus and let me land on the hope that he offers. Let me look at his face and let me see everything else through the lens of Jesus. Because if I'm looking through the face of Jesus and I see him and his character, then I see things like lavish love and compassion and mercy and grace. And when I see the circumstances of my wanderer, it's bathed in the truth of this lens of Jesus. I have switched the lens. That's hope. Because now hope has become my starting point. It's become the trajectory and it's become my landing pad. The circumstances have not changed, but my new lens, the face of Jesus, changes how I see them. I can see them with hope. Now, it doesn't always work this way. Sometimes there are circumstances that fly in our face in that shock and awe category, and my sorrow might be acute. I will see those things first. Again, I'm not denying normal. But I believe, and experience confirms, if I continue to push this lens of Jesus in front and center, it becomes more habit than work, and it becomes normal. It's where I want to start, and it's where I want to land. God has wonderful transforming work for us. And as we consider for ourselves, remember I said, this seminar is not about your loved one. It's about you and God transforming us through worship, through laying down our aisle, through switching the lens to these landing pads. But I also want to acknowledge that not a day goes by that we do not pray for our loved ones. Um, Kevin, when I was talking with him about this part of it, I said, you know, I pray for you every day, Kevin. And he said, oh, I'd be shocked and hurt if you didn't. <laughs> okay, well, I continue to do that. And, you know, um, when I pray, very often I use scripture 
as a prompt for my prayers. And so I want us to consider just in this brief moment about praying for our loved ones, thinking about a verse from Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is written by David as a prayer for the Lord's protection. It's a declaration of trust in God and David's confidence in God's care for him. But tucked in there in verse four, it's a verse of contrast, okay? It's a verse describing those who do not trust in God. 16.4 says, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. As long as your loved one is running after other gods, their sorrows are going to increase. And I will tell you, this is where you have hope. Because those sorrows will eventually lead them to the end of themselves. And it's hard to watch. But we have to ask ourselves, can we pray? God, do what you need to do and allow what you need to allow to bring this wanderer home. Amen. End. Or are you like me who have often prayed, God, bring him back to you, but please protect him from the dangers of this world that he is steeped in? For so long I qualified my prayers for my son. You know, because your mind starts spinning, the worry starts taking over. Protect, protect him or her from the, the job firing or the loss of friends, the arresting officers, the spinal cord injuries, the unintended pregnancies, the drug bus, and there it goes, right? Protect them from the bad investments, the bad choices, and the bad people. But can we pray? Do what you need to do. Allow what you need to allow to bring your wanderer home. I have prayed for Kevin to be miserable. <laughs> I have prayed that he would not be happy or content or satisfied with his life apart from Christ. Now, I shared that with a father of a wanderer at one point, and he said to me, in all honesty, I don't know if I can do that. That sounds really hard. And my only response was, I said, you know, I thought so too until I prayed it. It was like the last surrender, my last white flag, my last gasp of releasing my son fully into the care of his compassionate and loving father. Now, I do have some scriptures for you too, because remember this seminar is about you and your walk with the Lord. So I'm gonna pass these around because I love scripture as a prompt for our prayers. And scriptures about the things we've talked about, the peace and the worship. You wanna pass these around? About the peace and the worship that we desire about the anger and the compassion and lavish love that we're seeking, about the sadness and the hope where we would like to land. So I hope that you can use these scripture verses as prompts as you pray for yourself, but also remember to pray that God will do what he needs to do and allow what he needs to allow to bring your wanderer home. So let me pray for us before we leave. Heavenly Father, we are indeed blessed to be in this place where Jesus just seeps and oozes through everything. It is the Holy Spirit glue that binds us together and binds us to you in this place. This is a place where our wandering ones are with us here this week, 
or they have spent time with us here, and we say thank you. Lord, we do pray that you would do what you need to do and allow what you need to allow to bring our wanderers home to you. And Heavenly Father, it is our desire to release our anxiety to you through worship, to land at your peace. We want to lay down our anger and anything else that we're clinging to that would keep us from receiving your compassion and lavish love at your beautiful party. And God, when we are in the deepest place of sadness, help us to see your face so that we can land on hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, thanks for coming, you guys. Have a great rest of your day.